Space and time are the framework within which the mind is constrained to construct its experience of reality. Immanuel Kant Welcome everybody to the podcast, Two Guys Searching for Truth on the Road That Never Ends. I'm Credo, and my co-host is Glaucon. We both invite you to take historical ideas within their context along with us, examine the thinkers and the timeless ideas they provide to us. These ideas are as relevant today as they were back then. It's our hope and our belief that in doing so would bring us closer to the truth. Just note that the views expressed by the host do not in any way reflect the personal views of the hosts themselves. All right, let's do this. Alright, so it's been a while since we've done an episode. We've both been pretty busy. And uh, this is episode 19. And we're going to jump back to Plato and our old friend Socrates for a little while. And we're going to look at the Apology tonight. And this is basically picking up just a little bit after the Euthyphro, which is something we did quite a while ago. That was, I think, our one of our very early episodes, the Euthyphro, maybe number three. And at that time, if you remember, Socrates had been indicted on charges brought against him. And the apology is his defense. It's his trial. And it's Socrates giving his defense against the charges. And at that time, the jury was made up of 500 people who were citizens of Athens. And so that's the audience. The audience is the members of the society that are going to be a jury and decide his fate, whether he lives or dies, uh, because the charges brought against him were capital charges. So potential punishment was death. And he is being charged with corrupting the youth and believing in new spiritual things, uh, not believing in the traditional gods. And he's been brought into court, and he's a very kind of popular social person. So most people knew who he was. He would spend his days in the gymnasiums and in the marketplace, and he would talk to people and was always trying to convince people to follow the good life and to pursue the truth. And he would question people and try to find out if there was a real basis for what they thought. And the young people would follow him around and would listen to him question sometimes famous people and powerful people, and sometimes their elders or potentially their parents. And the children would kind of laugh when Socrates made them look like fools. And obviously this didn't win him you know, a lot of allies. And he kind of had a mixed reputation because he upset a lot of people. And there were certain political things that had happened that had also kind of caused him to be a kind of person who was, you know, he didn't have a perfect reputation in society, let's say. And so that's part of the reason also why he's being brought into court here. So he's, he's made some enemies. He's made some enemies because of his pursuit of the truth. He's made some enemies because of his personality, and he's made some enemies because of his political alliances of the past. And he brings up this point when he's beginning his discourse, his defense, that a person had gone to Delphi and had asked the oracle at Delphi, is there anyone wiser than Socrates? And the oracle replied that no one was wiser. And this was conveyed to Socrates, and Socrates was puzzled when he heard this, at least that's what he tells us, he was puzzled by this. And that's when he has his big realization, the most famous quote that everyone thinks of when they think of Socrates, uh, that he is wise because he understands that he's not wise. And what he says is, he says, I'm very conscious that I'm not wise at all. What then does he mean by saying that I am the wisest? And there he's talking about the oracle. He's wondering, what could this mean that I'm the wisest? And then he thinks to himself, he says, I am likely to be wiser than he to this small extent that I do not think I know what I do not know. And that's the 
kind of famous quote, right? What's interesting about this is that later on, in some other places, Socrates talking about what he knows, says that he has a certain kind of human knowledge. And one of the charges brought against him, in addition to the two that we already mentioned, is that he teaches about things in the sky and below the earth. And here, the charge is that he teaches about scientific kinds of things, which was very, very common. Sophists, lots of sophists taught about scientific things, and children would be taught by the sophists. They would be hired by their parents to teach the children. And Socrates actually didn't teach about scientific things. And that was one of the things that Socrates thought you couldn't know. He thought you couldn't really know about the nature of the material world. And this goes back to the allegory of the cave, which we've discussed. And it's a part of the kind of epistemological problem, the problem of knowledge that human beings have. We kind of are in this situation where we don't have full access to the material world. We have a kind of mediated way of getting at the material world through our senses and through other apparatus that we can use to magnify our senses. But we can't actually get to objects in and of themselves. We only get to objects as we experience them. So we don't actually know what the actual world is like. And we don't have access, seemingly, we don't have access to the fundamental principles like the form of the good, uh, at least not readily. You know, maybe through a life of contemplation, we can reach a kind of state similar to nirvana, where we have a kind of intellectual enlightenment and the form of good comes into view. But it's nothing that is common and it's nothing that is kind of something that's under the purview of the ordinary human. So as far as ordinary humans go, we don't have knowledge of first principles or of the kind of higher absolute truths, and we don't have access to the material world. So what do we have access to? And so this, I think, is kind of a clue to what Socrates was talking about when he says he has a certain kind of human knowledge. You know, humans spend all of their time thinking about their moral situation. And Socrates thinks that the only good conversation is a conversation about what is the good life or how can we be happy. And those are all fundamentally, ultimately the same thing. And so he thinks he does have a certain kind of knowledge about how to live a good life and about how to be happy as a human being. But that's different than having access to the truth in an empirical way or in a scientific way. So he doesn't come out and say that he has this knowledge, but he says if he has knowledge, he has a certain kind of human knowledge. And so that's kind of a little background to get us started on the apology. Any thoughts about that? I think one thing that is interesting about this, so in ancient Greece, religion and government were pretty well intertwined, as, as you mentioned, and this is the whole basis for him kind of challenging that and putting himself in danger by doing so. And so accordingly, citizens would have these legally enforced religious duties kind of to keep the gods happy, and, and Socrates was not doing that in seeing the gods as benevolent, wise, and rational, because why would you then need to please gods that were already good, right? They wouldn't be looking for those things. What do you think it says about the times, so the ancient Greek, and not just ancient Greek, other empires and societies as well, but also about the religions of the time, this idea that, you know, the gods, if they are to be unchanging and true and all this, right, if emphasis is placed on the wrong god, then basically wisdom doesn't become attainable, right? Because this is kind of what we're seeing. He's basically being prosecuted because he's seeking truth, which, you know, in many religious contexts would be kind of the goal of the religion itself. I don't know, how do you make sense of that? Right, that's a, that's a great, excellent question, right? Because really, the idea of religion is that it's about the truth, it's the true thing, and the adherents of that religion certainly view it as the truth. And it seems to be the case that a lot of religions have overlap about what they think is right and wrong. And you can make this argument, which I think we've kind of pointed to in the past, that you know all of these kind of religious accretions or formations that occur over time in societies, different societies, are efforts to express the truth and get at the truth. 
And in the Republic, right, Socrates and Plato kind of make this argument that uh, religion should be manufactured by philosophers in a very careful way. And that, that's obviously very heretical stuff. <laughs> but so here, the idea is that the truth that religions try to get at has to be gotten at in a different way and has to be carefully uh, expressed and put together so that we don't have problems with religions that come from areas where they're not actually getting at the truth or not getting at what's good. And we see a lot of bad things happening in the world in the name of religion. And this is the kind of thing that I think Plato and Socrates are worried about when they worry about religions being kind of put together in a kind of not careful way by just kind of happenstance and trial and error over a long period of time involving individuals that are not very carefully reflective and have agendas, political and otherwise, in the mix. And so that's one issue there. Another issue is that a more kind of philosophical issue that if, and I think you were hinting at this, that if gods are perfectly good and perfect in every way, they're going to be in this kind of unchanging, perpetual, perfect state. And part of that perfection, part of what it is to be perfect and be in that perfect state is to not really be in need of anything. So there is nothing that the gods would actually need from us humans, from us mortals. So if worship serves a purpose, that purpose is not to edify or increase or benefit the gods. And that's because they're perfect. They already are benefited maximally. The purpose of worship would have to be to benefit us and would have to be to edify us and make us better. And the gods, if they're worthy of worship from Socrates' point of view, and this will come up again a little bit later as we go into the apology, that they basically have to recognize humans doing the right thing and have to recognize humans pursuing the truth as a good thing. And this goes back to the Euthyphro when we ask the question about morality or the gods, what is more fundamental or more basic, and we kind of came to the realization in the Euthyphro that the gods are judged by whether or not they're good. So goodness is more basic than the gods, at least in that way of looking at them. So I don't know if that really answers your question, but it's a, it's a shot at some of the issues you were bringing up there. It does, thanks. And then I guess to kind of transition slightly into the first accusation of corrupting the youth, I'd like you to kind of walk us through this idea about why someone would not intentionally corrupt another. Right, absolutely. So he makes this argument, right, that a person is not going to damage their fellow citizens because by doing so, you would damage society and you have to yourself live in society. So if you deliberately corrupt the young, as he's being charged with, then you're deliberately harming yourself. But no wise person would want to harm themselves and he's at least wise enough to not do that. So he would not undermine the young, at least not intentionally. If he did it unintentionally, then he thinks he's not guilty in the way that he needs to be guilty to be punished. He is rather making a mistake. And when a person makes a mistake and isn't deliberately doing something wrong, what they're in need of is correction. So what Socrates is arguing here is that the person that's brought these charges against him, should have taken him aside and said, look, you need some instruction here, you're doing this wrong, and this is what needs to happen here. And this is a basic argument, right, about the nature of punishment, that when people make mistakes and are doing things wrong, we have to carefully analyze the situation. And if they're not really understanding things correctly, we need to give them instruction and educate them. The other kind of funny thing here, though, is that Really, you know, Socrates would win any argument. So if someone thought he was harming the kids, corrupting the youth, and they tried to explain to Socrates why he was corrupting the youth, you know, we kind of know that Socrates would win that argument <laughs> and would, would say, no, I'm not corrupting the youth. You're actually standing in the way of improving the youth at best. And most likely, they're corrupting the youth, right? And, and this comes out too when the charge is first kind of brought up, you know, that you corrupt the youth and then Socrates says, well, am I the only one that corrupts the youth or do other people corrupt the youth? Do the people in this fine jury corrupt the youth? You know, and so here he forces his accuser to have to say that, no, Socrates, the 
The fine people in the jury do not corrupt the youth. Only you corrupt the youth. And then Socrates says, well, if I'm the only one that corrupts the youth, we're doing pretty good. Because <laughs> it seems like it would be the case that a whole bunch of people are corrupting the youth. But if it's only me, then I guess we're doing all right. And this is pretty funny, right? So I think that is kind of the main way that he addresses that charge. I mean, and it's a tricky thing, right? Because when children learn things, and this happens today, right? We, we see a, there's a big dispute about education right now in our society. When children go to school and learn things and they go home and they talk to their parents about them, their parents get upset, right? And this is kind of the stuff that was happening with Socrates, right? They would, these kids would be around with Socrates and then they'd go home to their parents and their parents would say, you know, this is what we're doing and this is why we're doing it. And they would have all of these really smart things to say to undermine their parents' views. And that's not going to be something that parents are going to like very much. Right? Yeah. And so, so that's, that's a big part of the power of the corrupting the youth charge, right? And I think this goes to his whole concept of just challenging the status quo. You know, when you set your target on something that's objective, it forces you to self-correct your kind of views, almost like what science does, which, you know, it's debatable whether that's actually objective, but at least it does have a certain truth aspect to it. And once the truth comes out, well, then you correct what you had previously believed, and then you, you know, side with the truth, and you continue to try and get closer and closer, which is, you know, a lot of Socrates' teachings. And so I think that's pretty telling that when you have a generation of older individuals, right, where the children are going home to the older generation, and they're hearing things, again, that's been corrected since they were in school, right, then they're going to refuse these things. And I think it just goes further to prove his point as to he's actually seeking truth, and he's not really seeking corruption at all. No, that's right. Absolutely. And just to go back just real quick and look at the idea of wisdom and this idea that the oracle told Socrates, look, you're the wisest, right? There's no one wiser than Socrates. And so then Socrates is puzzled by this, so he goes on a little quest, right, to find out who's wiser than him. And this, is, this goes to the point you're just making, why people get upset and how people get upset when someone's taking a stand to seek the truth no matter what, right? And so if we recall, the real philosopher has courage because he's willing to examine his views and put them to the test. And the trouble that Socrates is running into here is that he's not just putting his own views to the test, right? He's putting lots of other people's views to the test so people get upset, right? So he thinks to himself, well, there's lots of poems that seem to be super profound and insightful, so I'll go talk to the poets and see if they're wise, because they seem to write these really profound things. And so he goes to talk to the poets, and he questions them, you know, as Socrates would do, and then there are other people around that are listening to this interaction, this dialogue that he's having with the poets, and he's discovering that the poets don't understand their own poems. And the spectators are also watching this and they think, wow, the poets are really dumb. And so, you know, you've got these poets that have a kind of reputation for profundity and now they're, that's being undermined. So they're not going to be liking Socrates very much. And then he also goes to politicians and he talks to politicians and he finds out that politicians are really dumb and they don't understand their political views and the implications of their views and and then people are watching once again, and obviously politicians have a very serious need for people to think they're smart and on the right track, otherwise they won't be in power. And so the politicians are upset at Socrates. And then finally, you know, he goes to craft workers and people that are building things and that are, have skills like weaving and pottery making and things like that. And he's he realizes that, wow, these people actually have knowledge I don't have. They actually have some real knowledge, right? So it's like going to a mechanic and they work on your car. They understand how to fix your car or something you don't know how to do. doesn't matter how good you are at philosophy. If you can't fix a car, you're not going to be going anywhere. So you've got to rely on the mechanic to fix your car. They certainly have knowledge you don't have. The other thing to say about this is, you know, I've seen some interviews with rock stars, you know, and some, some rock songs, right, have this kind of like, they seem to be profound, you know, you listen to these songs, and you're like, oh, that's a great song, that's got so much meaning, and then you actually listen to the person that wrote it talk about it, and you're like, wow, that's a letdown. This person has a pretty, like, 
shallow view of what the lyrics mean. And so there's a way in which the source of the inspiration is puzzling. And this is something Socrates wonders about, you know, is there some other source of inspiration for this apparently profound stuff that people are saying that doesn't seem to be connected to their own character? And that might be, you know, explainable by our own ability to interpret things based on our own understanding of things. But it is, it is kind of an interesting puzzle. Yeah, and before we get into, I guess, the second charge, I think it's interesting just to kind of keep in the back of our minds the tight line that he's walking here. Not only is he saying, I'm not a sophist, but he's having to use sophist techniques to, you know, make arguments. But then on top of that, he's being charged for going against the gods, yet he's at the same time saying, no, no, but I, I do believe in the gods, right? And so if you were on the other side, you could easily see how if you didn't believe in the truth as he's telling it, you could easily see, oh, he is believing in false gods, right? Like we have our model of what a god should be. And clearly he's not really according to that, right? And then on top of that, he's showing young people to basically fight with those that don't hold the common view, right? And so I guess what I'm saying is it's interesting to be able to be removed from this for over 2000 years so that we can actually back up and see it. You know, we just get a different view, I think, than most people at the time. And I think that's important to keep in our minds because it does seem like you could make an argument that he is correctly charged with the things he's being charged even if it's unreasonable. That's exactly right. I'm just going to read something from the very beginning of the Apology, when he first starts talking to the people of Athens. And this goes to what you were just saying about the use of sophistry and how he's arguing and whether or not he's a good speaker. And so here he says, I cannot tell, but I know that their persuasive words almost made me forget who I was. Such was the effect of them, and yet they have hardly spoken a word of truth. So he's talking about his accusers there. But many as their falsehoods were, there was one of them which quite amazed me. I mean, when they told you to be upon your guard and not to let yourself be deceived by the force of my eloquence. So here he's saying, they warned you that I would be very eloquent and be very persuasive and be able to convince you with my arguments. And then he goes on to say, they ought to have been ashamed of saying this because they were sure to be detected as soon as I opened my lips and displayed my deficiency. They certainly did appear to be most shameless in saying this, unless by the force of eloquence they mean the force of truth. For then I do indeed admit that I am eloquent. But in how different way from theirs, well, as I was saying, they have hardly uttered a word or not more than a word of truth. But you shall hear from me the whole truth, not however delivered after their manner, in a set oration, duly ornamented with words and phrases. No, indeed, but I shall use the words and arguments which occur to me at the moment, for I am certain that this is right, and that at my time of life I ought not to be appearing before you, O men of Athens, in the character of a juvenile orator. So basically, what he's saying here is that, and this is a very interesting point, I think, for legal arguments, when you are arguing the truth, and what you're saying goes back to what's true and what you believe is true, you don't have to think carefully about what you're going to say. You can just talk because what you're saying is rooted in what's true. You have to be very careful in how you speak when you're not anchoring what you're saying in the truth because you have to kind of anticipate all these potential problems with what you're saying because it's not true or it's not completely anchored in the truth. And so this, Socrates argues, is the source of his eloquence, right? And so then, this has always been a pretty interesting point that I've thought about when I'm getting ready to make legal arguments, because if you're really arguing from what is the case, you have a lot less to worry about. So I think that's, that's always been something I've found to be pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks for sharing that. That's pretty amazing. You know, Mark Twain would famously say, you know, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. It's kind of the same idea that you're talking about. Absolutely. Exactly the same idea. You don't have to remember things. You don't have to kind of anticipate pitfalls and make sure that you're navigating potential responses. So then we go on to this next charge, right? And here the accuser is going to say, you know, you teach in other spiritual, weird spiritual things and you undermine the gods of Athens. And so then Socrates kind of goes back and forth with him a little bit. 
and paints him into a corner, as he did before when he got the accuser to say that I'm the only one that corrupts the youth. And so now he gets the accuser to say that Socrates doesn't believe in gods at all. So in other words, Socrates is an atheist. Then once Socrates has gotten him to say that he is an atheist, or he doesn't believe in the gods at all, he gives his first argument for believing in the gods. And he says, no person believes in human activities without believing in humans. No person believes in spiritual activities without believing in spirits, or some basis for the spiritual activities. You say I believe in spiritual things and teach about them. I must believe in spiritual things, but spiritual things are namely gods. So in other words, since I teach about spiritual things, I must believe in spirits or in gods. And so another way I think to kind of put this argument is to say that Socrates teaches about the true and the good and about the virtuous life, the moral life. But really, teaching about the true and the good, the moral life and the virtuous life doesn't make sense unless there's a basis for the true and the good. And the basis for the true and the good is, as we know from Socrates and Plato's point of view, the form of the good. But the form of the good is basically the gods, right? Or what people are calling the gods, right? So I think that is a more honest version of the argument than we get actually in the Apology. It goes right back to what we've been saying all along and one of the strong arguments against kind of these relativist views you know it's like we know that there must be some sort of basis to argue towards truth because we know that truth exists we do know that there are objective things and therefore there must be some sort of larger objective form or something like that that we can reach absolutely and so then he goes on and he has a couple of really good arguments right one is the argument for remaining at his post and so this is one of my favorite arguments from Socrates, right? So he says, whenever a person has taken a position that he believes to be best, or has been placed by his commander, there he must, I think, remain and face danger, without a thought for death or anything else rather than disgrace. And so if we recall, Socrates was dedicated for acts of valor on the battlefield, was honored for acts of valor on the battlefield. And uh, I think there were three times when he performed acts of courage on the battlefield and was honored for these acts of courage. And what Socrates basically argues is, look, I fought for Athens, for the state. And when I fought for the state, a human general commanded me to stay at my post and to stand my ground. And at risk of life and limb, I did as commanded and I stayed at my post and I fought and I could have died, but I stayed and didn't run away. And now you're asking me to no longer teach philosophy, no longer practice philosophy, and no longer pursue the truth, and no longer have conversations with my fellow Athenians about the nature of the truth and about the good life and about morality and virtue. But these are things which the gods have charged me to perform. And so why would I stop teaching philosophy and talking about the good life and having good conversations with my fellow Athenians because you want me to stop doing this if the gods have asked me to do it, even if you're going to kill me, because I was willing to stand my ground and face death when being charged by a human general to do so. So now, obviously, if the gods are requiring me to do this, why would I run away now? And uh, this is really a great great argument. And so this is now bleeding into the kind of martyrdom stuff, really. Because if we take Socrates' argument seriously here, we all have to actually do this all the time, right? <laughs> you know, we have to stand up for what's right. And even if that means we're going to die, because otherwise, just regular acts of courage don't even make any sense. Because these are acts of courage, which are far more meaningful. And what does it mean to say that it's something that the gods have charged us with? That's another very, I think, complex thing to answer, really. Going to Buddhism for a second. In Buddhism, they have the Bodhisattva vow, you know, and, and they say, you know, we vow to quell all desires, and they have all these vows they make. And they say, you know, we vow to quell our desires, and how many desires are there? They're infinite. And how much time would it take? It would take forever. You know, and so, and why do we vow? <laughs> why do we make this vow? 
because we're humans and it's our job. We have to do this. And so even though they're impossible, even though it's impossible to do these things, it's our human kind of like responsibility to do these things, to try to do these things. And so I think this is also kind of what Socrates has in mind here. He's not talking about a situation where Jesus Christ, Moses, and God appear to him and say, Socrates, you must speak the truth, and you must teach the truth, and you must do philosophy. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about a situation where our constitution as human beings, in some way or another, causes us to be kind of mandated to pursue moral perfection. And it does seem to be the case that we have this kind of recognition of perfection, and we pine after it, whether we want to admit it or not. We seek it, and we can't attain it. And it's kind of our lot as human beings, but I think this is the kind of thing that Socrates is talking about, really, when he's saying that the gods are asking him to do this. You know, it's, it's more that it's kind of fundamental to our nature that we have to do this. You know, I mean, that's another way of saying it, right? Yeah, it's almost another rephrasing of the Euthyphro in some ways, right? That he believes that it's more important to go after the good, true good, rather than any sort of human-created god or any sort of kind of thing like that, right? That the morals are going to be more superior than any gods. No, that's right. That's right. It's a great point. It really does go back to the Euthyphro, right? And that's why the Euthyphro is, is such a powerful dialogue that still, to this very day, has a profound impact on people. And any given day, there are people arguing about this point <laughs> all over the planet, which is pretty funny. Totally. And it's amazing to see a through line through so many different pieces of his work to show just the consistency, which again kind of shows this objective basis that he's really pursuing. Absolutely. And then he goes on, right? So then after this, he starts talking about risking your life and death. And these are things that you, I mean, you wouldn't really talk about them in this way, I think, if you hadn't already decided that the judgment was not going to be in your favor, that you were going to be found guilty. You know, I think Socrates was expecting to be found guilty. And it turns out, ultimately, that it's a pretty close vote. And he was almost acquitted of the charges. But he's not acquitted, ultimately. He's found guilty. And I think that Socrates anticipated this, you know, and this is something that I think lots of people that find themselves advocating positions of truth that aren't popular, positions of morality that aren't popular. And it's more likely to be the case that they're on the right side of things in these kinds of situations, because that's what makes someone's words powerful enough to want people want to kill them, right? So the reason why people want to kill people when they start speaking the truth is because what they're saying is getting traction and is, is making a powerful inroads into the society. And that usually happens when someone's on the right side of things. So you get these cases where, you know, a person like Gandhi or Martin Luther King or Christ is killed, basically. And the only thing they're doing is trying to make society a better place and trying to talk about a rational approach to things and trying to advocate for justice. And it is a very interesting thing, right? So I think in most of these cases, people in these situations are obviously they're evolved enough and developed enough spiritually, intellectually, morally to want to do this, right? To put themselves in danger in this way. And I think quite often they're well aware of the danger they're in, right? So I think when a person is in that kind of a situation, you know, they, they start to talk about things in this way that, that Socrates is talking about things in the Apology, where he starts to talk about uh, risk of life and is death an evil? So in terms of risk of life, he says, you are wrong, sir, if you think that a person who is any good at all should take into account the risk of life or death. He should look to this only in his actions, whether what he is doing is right or wrong, whether he is acting like a good or a bad person. And so here, this is like a recap of what we were just talking about. But what's interesting here is that this is the hardline view, that the only thing you should worry about is whether or not you're being a good person. You shouldn't actually take pragmatic considerations into account. And as we talked about in our first couple of episodes, people do 
trump their moral values with pragmatic considerations all the time, right? Like the poor person who stole the bread, I think in our second episode, that person stole the bread because they wanted to feed their family, their pragmatic considerations overrode them, and they did that. And so here we get this argument that, uh, no, you should, if it means you're going to die, it doesn't matter. You have to do what's right. And then from there, he goes on to talk about, is death an evil? And he says, no one knows whether death may not be the greatest of all blessings for a person. Yet people feared as if they knew that it was the greatest of evils. And so here, Socrates is saying, look, we don't know what happens when we die. But people assume that death is bad. And if you really think about things, we know for sure that if we do something wrong, or we betray our own values, and run away when we should have stood our ground and made the case for what's right, we know something bad is going to happen. There are going to be bad consequences for that behavior. But we don't know what's going to happen when we die. So why would we trade something that we know is bad for something we don't know? And so that's part of his argument for why you should always do what's right and not worry about <laughs> dying, right? <laughs> and then he goes on talking about, you know, who is going to be harmed if you kill the kind of person that I am or that you think I am. And so he says, be sure that if you kill the sort of person I say I am, you will not harm me more than yourselves. And then he goes on to say, I do not think it is permitted that a better person be harmed by a worse. Certainly a person might kill me or perhaps banish or disenfranchise me, which he and maybe others think to be a great harm, but I do not think so. I think he is doing himself a much greater harm, attempting to have a person executed unjustly. And so here, he's saying that this is a radical view, right? That a worse person can't harm a better person. So in other words, you know, a virtuous person is incarcerated, and then that person is beaten up in jail by five much bigger inmates that are in a gang, right? So there, that seems to go directly against what Socrates is saying. But that can't be what Socrates is talking about, right? What he's talking about is that the important part of us that really matters is the part of us that is the virtuous part of us. And that part can only be edified or diminished by ourselves. No one outside of us can edify or diminish that part of ourselves. Only we can through our actions or the lack of action that we take. And so that part of us can't be harmed by anyone. So in that sense, a worse person cannot make a better person worse off. And I think we see this, you know, with people like Nelson Mandela is incarcerated for a long, long period of time. And lots of people that go through these very difficult hardships and then come through it on the other side, they're not actually made worse, even though they are in some sense made worse, right? Like the, the leader of Myanmar, right? Incarcerated for a long, long time. And you can damage that person physically, you can damage that person in terms of reputation, but the better part of them, the real essence of who they are, cannot be damaged. And so that, I think, is what Socrates is talking about here. And what's interesting is that this argument he makes about if I'm the kind of person that you say I am or that I say I am, then you're harming yourself more than me when you harm me. And this is the same thing as similar to the idea that what the Christ brings up when he's being crucified, because Christ says... Right, this famously says, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so here, the implication is that they're harming themselves, right? And this is an interesting idea, right? Because in a certain sense, the way that martyrdom works, I mean, someone has to kill the person. That person may be harmed more, but society itself might be benefited, right? <laughs> and so that's the kind of weird thing here, right? Because really... The reason why we're reading Plato today and the reason why we've had this podcast and talked about Plato and why philosophy has flourished in the way that it has is because Socrates took the stand in a sense. You know, it, we wouldn't be even thinking about it if Socrates hadn't been killed for this. So it is a pretty bizarre thing, really. Yeah, and it goes further even than just him taking a, you know, the stand in a philosophic sense. I mean... You know, in the Apology, it mentions how he didn't bring his children to court with him to try and plead for mercy. You know, I mean, there's just so much there that really just demonstrates his clarity on where he stands 
and that I think it just really inspired so many people who observed it and who learned from this, including Plato, who's taking the eyewitness account of this. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And you're right. When he's talking about this, <clears throat> the pleading for mercy argument is great. Right. So this is like the uh, not abandoning my post argument we talked about earlier. But the begging and pleading for mercy argument is great, right? Because he basically says, look, lots of you have been in court before. And when you're in court on much less serious charges than I'm in court for, you drag your family out here and you make this appeal to pity and you beg and plead. But you won't see me doing any of this today. And I didn't bring my family in here and do this. And the fact that I'm not doing that demonstrates that I believe in the gods like none of you do. And so this is an interesting point, right? Because here we see in a lot of very supposedly, right, religious societies that there's a very harsh form of punishment, generally speaking. So very religious societies tend to have very serious punishments, legal punishments for things that people do. And what's curious about this is that if you actually really believed in God, wouldn't you think that God would kind of provide for universal justice and make everything just and right in the end? And if that is the case, wouldn't you be far less concerned about punishing people for their infractions? Because you would think, well, God is going to give them what they deserve and God will make any injustice right in the end. And so if a person actually holds that to be the case, they're not going to worry about being punished for something if what they did was something that's not worthy of being punished because the gods are going to take care of them in the end. And this comes up again a little bit later when he's talking about the nature of death and whether or not it's a good or a bad thing. But it is definitely an interesting point. It is. And it almost seems like by enforcing these sorts of punishments and not leaving it to the gods to handle the matters themselves, it's almost like a lack of faith in them, I kind of ironically, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the thing, right? Where if, if a person is actually begging and pleading and making all of these basically servile and, you know, actions that come out of a bad character, a meanness of character, rather than out of your nobility of character, you know, these things are beneath us, undermine us, and also demonstrate that we don't actually believe in universal justice. If we don't believe in universal justice, I mean, what that says about us is that we actually really don't believe in the gods. And the, the idea of running away to fight another day and not standing strong for what's right and what's virtuous, uh, those things, those actions all betray our actual real belief in goodness and virtue. And so what Socrates is arguing here is that, look, my actions tell you whether or not I believe in the gods. The fact that I'm here, standing here, arguing for the truth and arguing to be able to go around and talk to people about what is a good life and what is true, the very fact that I'm doing this demonstrates that I believe in the gods and actually believe in the gods more than any of you do. And so it's a powerful argument. <laughs> you know? Yeah, almost as powerful as when he goes on to, you know, after he's found guilty and, you know, they start suggesting punishments, you know, I mean, he's kind of, you know, suggesting reward. Right, absolutely. It's super, super funny, right? Kind of comic relief in the apology, right? When he says, you know, what do I deserve to have done to me? I deserve to be fed where you feed the Olympic athletes that have victories. So basically, the Olympic athletes, when they win a victory, they're fed this giant feast. And he says, that's what I deserve to have happened to me. I deserve for you to feed me a giant feast. And then if, if you want to give me a little minor fine, maybe like one little piece of silver, I could do that. I could pay that if you really want to punish me, <laughs> right? So it, it's, it's pretty comical, right? It kind of makes, in many of the martyrs, it kind of is that link also that creates a very human-like image. I mean, you know, he has a sense of humor. He's actually a person, right? And it's something I think that's relatable that most people find in martyrs. And yeah, it's nice to have that in here. No, absolutely. And so when he's... Reflecting at the very end, he starts reflecting on death again, which now makes sense for him to reflect on death, right? And he says, There is a good hope that death is a blessing, for it is one of two things. Either the dead are nothing and have no perception, or it is a relocating of the soul from one place to another. And so here he, he says, Think about this, right? How many kings would pay a ransom to just have one good night of sleep? 
if you die and nothing happens when you die and that's just the end of it, it's like a long, long, good sleep, you know? And so here, there's nothing to fear if it's just a long, good sleep. Because, hey, that's what we look forward to at the end of the day and we really don't need to fear that. If it's a relocating of the soul from one place to another, from this place that we're at now to some other location, then the real jury people, the gods, will receive a person that's virtuous and good and will make sure that they're rewarded for their actions in life. And if the gods do not reward a person for seeking the truth and being virtuous and being good, then those gods are not worthy of worship and I don't want anything to do with them. So this is very interesting, right? Because this goes in kind of like full circle back to the Euthyphro, where if gods are worthy of worship, they have to recognize goodness. So if you're a good person, you don't have anything to fear. And, you know, sometimes people say, you know, that if a person that's virtuous sleeps good at night, and we've all heard that kind of an idea, right? And so the idea is that if you're a good person and a virtuous person, you don't have much to worry about. And sort of in a fundamental way. And this is kind of what Socrates is getting at here. If you've lived a good life and you've done what's right and you've done the best that you can do as a human being, you really don't need to fear death because what makes death an object of fear is not living a good life, right? And so sometimes people say that, you know, philosophy is the topic of philosophy and I think Plato says this, actually. The topic of philosophy is how to die well. That's the only real topic of philosophy. And so what that means is basically that the topic of philosophy is how do I live a good life or how can I be happy? Because how do I live a good life and how can I be happy is actually the same topic as how do I die well. So it's, it's pretty interesting stuff, right? And then he finishes up by saying, now the hour to part has come. I go to die and you go to live. Which of us goes to the better lot is known to no one except the God. Okay, so we began this episode by giving some context to the trial of Socrates, which took place in 399 BCE. We looked at Socrates' apology, which, as we mentioned, although it's called an apology, it's probably more appropriately translated as a defense. So Socrates was charged with two accusations, the first being impiety against the pantheon of Athens, and then the second being corruption of the Athenian youth, and which essentially, as we mentioned, was just teaching them to doubt the status quo. So evident from the trial itself, Socrates continues to be a philosopher. He defends himself with sound argument and logical reason. He explains that if he were the wisest person in the land, as the prophetess at the Oracle of Delphi suggests, then it would only be because unlike so many who think themselves wise but don't possess wisdom, Socrates knows that he's not wise. He mentions that he's very much a spiritual person, that he does believe in the good, he believes in the ultimate good, and to him that's the utmost divinity. Um, he makes a strong appeal to laws and obeying authority as well. Although despite his arguments, including the point where he points out that so many are here to accuse him, yet basically none of the accusers actually presented themselves except three individuals, he also showed that Miletus had obvious contradictions in his arguments, Socrates was sentenced to death. So philosophically, his argument may have been a success, but legally it didn't do much to change the outcome of the case. I'd like to follow up on a little bit before closing out. So... Given that this was one of Plato's earlier works, how influential do you think witnessing what happened to Socrates here was to Plato as well as to philosophy in general? No, I think it, I think it is of profound importance. And there are other accounts of this trial which are very similar. And lots of people think that because this was such a profound experience for the society of Athens, that Plato's account of the trial is most likely very accurate because it would have been something that would have been in recent memory of the society at large when Plato produced it and it was circulated. So it would have still been something that was very 
alive and well in people's minds. And because of that, Plato may be able to kind of obviously take a pro-Socrates stance, but couldn't really deviate from what had actually happened very much. And this is also kind of borne out by other versions of the event that are available to us. We can see that they are very similar. The accounts are very similar. So in terms of philosophy, I think it is significant, as we said before, if this event did not occur, I think it wouldn't have given Plato the kind of power that he had to become as popular as he did and as famous as he did. And if we kind of think of Plato as the person who was most influenced by Socrates in terms of being a philosopher or being a teacher or something like that, that seems to be true. And, you know, he forms the academy and begins the university system we have today. And so the very idea of a college, a university, comes from what Plato did. And Plato was influenced by Socrates. And as we talked about a long time ago, Aristotle is Plato's student, and then Alexander the Great was tutored by Aristotle. So even just in that way, we see a profound influence, right? And really, Aristotle and Plato, the two most profound thinkers of the ancient Greek world, and you can argue they're the two most profound thinkers that we have access to in contemporary society. I'm sure there were many others that we don't have any knowledge about. But in terms of people we have knowledge about, they're definitely up there. You know, obviously, there are some other great Chinese thinkers and Indian thinkers as well. But I think that when you look at the coherence and diversity and breadth of writing, Plato and Aristotle are pretty hard to go up against. You know, even someone like Confucius or Lao Tzu or Buddha is going to be more narrow in application when it comes to reflecting on the nature of life than either of those two, really. Truly a great response. And we hope that responses like this can inspire you all in your search for truth. And we'll see you next time as we search for truth on the road that never ends. <laughs>